And all of Hebrews chapter 7 is about the good news of the priesthood of Jesus. The gospel comes to us and it says this, you are so unholy and so unworthy of the presence of the holy God in yourself that you need a priest to bring you to that holy God. And the gospel says you are simultaneously so loved by this holy God that God the Son became your priest to bring you to God for all who trust in him. And tonight we turn our attention to this priesthood of Jesus. And we consider it from Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through 19. Let me invite you to give your attention to the word of God. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident, evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would use your word to teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And help us to see Jesus and rest in him, we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we saw that there are two lines of priesthood in the Old Testament, though it's commonly thought there's but one. There's the Levitical priests uh, of the line of Aaron through his son Levi. But there was a whole other line of priesthood, we said, uh, through a guy named Melchizedek, a strange name. He was king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. He was priest of God Most High. In Genesis 14, we learned that after a great battle, Abraham came before him, and Abram actually tithed to God through Melchizedek, and Abraham received from God a blessing through Melchizedek. These were priestly works. So even great Abraham had a priest. And the other important point we learned last week in verses 1 to 10, which has to tie in here, is the main point of 1 to 10, and that is Melchizedek is like Jesus. He resembles the Son of God. 
Jesus is a priest, but not in the line of Aaron and the Old Testament Levites. Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. And he is the priest that we need, is the point of chapter 7. There's a gentleman named Dr. Francis Schaefer who's now gone on. He started a Christian study center, a, a place in Switzerland some of you know of called Labrie. Back in 1950s, people would drift in from all over the world uh, for the hospitality, to eat, to sleep, uh, to have discussions about the big questions of life. Schaefer was one of a a very uh, number of influential Christian thinkers in his own day, and a man who was very well respected. Well, at some point, he sought an audience with the President of the United States under the Nixon administration. He, on a couple of occasions, thought that he was going to get to go see President Nixon. Rumors would begin to go around Labrie that some contact had been made or that there had been some channels uh, of uh, navigated and, and Dr. Schaefer was going to get 15 minutes of the President's time. Folks at Labrie would pray fervently for that to happen and for the conversations that would take place, and then nothing would happen for months on end. There was no access. It was repeatedly denied. Then several years later, the folks at Labrie learned that actually Dr. and Mrs. Schaefer had spent an entire evening having dinner with the Ford family when President Ford had taken the presidency. It turns out that Gerald Ford's son had once been a student at Labrie and thought it would be really great to get his family together with Dr. Schaefer. And so he invited the Schaefers over. And whereas admission had previously been denied, now they had open access to arguably the highest levels of state government in the world. Because a son led them into the presence of the Father. So also in spiritual things. As Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Where we can't go on our own, we can go by the Son who takes us to the Father. And so now what you have here in verses 11 through 19 is is him explaining at greater length this change in priesthood, but not only a change in that, but a change in law. He uses that word twice, change, in verse 12. Just put your eyes there for a second. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And so let's ask three questions questions of the passage to get our outline so to walk through it together let's ask three questions first what is this change he's talking about secondly why was it needed and thirdly how does it change things for us if we enter into it in the first place what changed well verse 12 both the priesthood and the law Levitical priests are out, a new priest is in, and that means there's got to be a new law about priests too, and that changed. Why did this happen? Because Jesus isn't a Levite, verses 13 and 14. 
For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Look, his point is simple. The law required that only men from one of the 12 tribes of Israel could ever be a priest. You couldn't be a priest if you were from another tribe in Israel. Not if you wanted to be. Not if you would be good at it. You were simply barred if you didn't descend from Levi. And Jesus isn't descended from Levi. How can he be a priest? He's he's pointing out he's of the tribe of Judah. And the Old Testament said nothing about priests from Judah. In fact, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Judah was the kingly lion. King David came out of Judah. And kings in Israel couldn't be priests. But here he is, king of kings and the high priest of God most high. So the tribe has changed and the law has changed too. Verse 16, Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement. That's the Old Testament law concerning bodily descent. That's family heritage in the line of Levi. And also verse 18, a former commandment, the commandment about being descended from Levi, is set aside. The law was set aside. Now what's happened? This is revolutionary. Nothing was ever the same for Israel after this. And I want you to sit in the disruption for a bit. I want you to think how how various kinds of people would have felt perhaps about this. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of uh, a Jewish man before the coming of Jesus. Imagine you're a man from the tribe of Levi. Imagine you're, you're soon to be a priest and you're waiting on this high point of your vocational experience. And now Jesus comes along and it's all gone. You're out of work. The family business is gone. How incredibly disrupting. The law that Moses gave, the whole book of Leviticus, half the book of Exodus, which tells you what to do no longer governs your life career would have been very disruptive. Or, 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 or if you weren't actually a Levite, think if you were from one of the other 12 tribes, but you were an observant Jew. You really cared about this. You would have said, what? No more temple sacrifices? No more culling my flock for an animal that's perfect enough to be offered? Uh, No more men in priestly garments going into the temple's holy places where I can't go, but doing it on my behalf and assuring me that if the animal was flawless enough to be accepted by the priest, then it was an acceptable offering and and you you should go. Go in peace. No more laws about these things. No more rituals. Are you serious? We've been doing this for 2,000 years, some of these Jews might have said. That would have been a hard pill to swallow for some. Even some who had become Christians embraced Jesus, but were so familiar with and caught up in that routine and so drawn perhaps by their their memories of it and their affections for it in some ways. Tempted to fall back, especially when everybody around them said, look, why are you walking away? You can imagine how disrupting it was. You can imagine if you were the kind of person that put great weight 
or significance in a family genealogies, your family heritage of faith, your family ancestry. Maybe, maybe you're the kind of person for whom it really matters that great, 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 great grandpa, you know, was a big wig in Israel. And he was a man of faith. And he passed that faith on to his kids and his kids and his kids. And it's come down to you. And so that you were like kids I had in youth group decades ago now who were so-and-so the fourth, so-and-so the fifth, and so-and-so the first was an elder in the church. And so-and-so the second was a deacon. And so-and-so the third was hoping to be a church officer. And so-and-so the fourth was in my youth group. And there was a kind of, for some... A kind of um, pride in the genes, pride of birth. I mean, you can imagine that anyway for some. A sense of maybe even entitlement to closeness to God. I mean, this is what our family has inherited. There are people like that who think that way. Surely in Israel there were people like that. And Jesus comes along and he says that doesn't matter. What matters is that you believe in me. And if you belong to me by faith, I will bring you all the way to God because I'm the son of the father and I get you where you want to go. But imagine you're a different kind of person. Imagine you're a law and order kind of person. You would have been greatly disturbed by this. And some people get a great deal of stability and security in life about knowing what the rules are and and having a set of rules to follow, right? A, A manner in which things are to be done. Maybe you're like that. You really thrive on structure and routine, knowing everybody's part in the family, what everybody's supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it. And, and so in Israel, there would have been plenty who would have taken great pride in the structure of, of the organization of the religious life following the rule book. Tells you how to be a priest, how to do the functions, what sacrifice to offer, when and how. And Jesus gets rid of the rules. You don't have to follow that anymore. Just believe in me. And I'm the fulfillment of of what the law required. The law is no more. Undoubtedly, there were other kinds of people. People who were drawn to the outward forms of religion. They they loved the temple. They loved the beauty and the glory of the temple. The ornate curtains, the gold plating, the candles, the incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the the mysterious rooms that, you know, nobody could get into behind the veil except that one guy once a year. But they loved that kind of stuff. It It was glorious in some ways. I'm not sure that they loved all of it. The, the garments of linen, once white, soaked in the blood of animal sacrifices. The priest's hands dripping and the, the temple floor running with the blood of a thousand animal sacrifices. You know, maybe that got to them. I don't know. But Jesus comes and he says, you don't need that either. Believe in me. I'm the reality to which all those are pictures Pictures pointing. And still others might have said, no, 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 look. I know about family heritage, and I know about law and order, and I know about about outward glory. And all those things have their place and their value. But I also know that God really cares about the heart and relationship. 
So what really matters to me is that I have some place I can go with my sins. And I can know that if I bring an animal unblemished and the priest accepts it and offers it and he takes the blood into the holy place, then he assures me. He assures me. And I'm free. But without the temple and the priest and the sacrifices... How can I really be sure? And Jesus says, I'm the temple and I'm the priest and I'm the sacrifice and I'm more than enough for you. Come to God through me and you can really be sure. You can really walk away knowing you're forgiven. Things had really changed. Now, why had they changed? That's the second point. Why? Notice three things. Imperfection, impermanence, and inability. Imperfection, verse 11. This is where the passage starts. The law couldn't bring perfection. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would they have had uh, or would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You see his point? The Levitical priesthood didn't accomplish all that God intends for people to have. It was but partial. It was incomplete. And so there needed to be a change in priest and law. Now be careful when you understand him saying there needed to be a change in the law. What law is he talking about? He's not talking about the moral law of God, which we read tonight. We read the fifth commandment out of the moral law. He's not saying that law is done away with. That law is a reflection of God's character. It shows you what he cares about. It shows you what true holiness is. It's a guide to life. It it shows you what love for God and love for other people is. No, no, no. He hasn't gotten rid of all of God's law. Moral law doesn't change. But the ceremonial law about priests and sacrifices and temple offerings, these things... They didn't bring completion. They didn't bring perfection. They didn't bring in the fulfillment of God's purpose that only Jesus could bring. They promised something, but they didn't themselves fulfill the promise. For instance, the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And and what the law law taught you was that uh, the wages of sin is death, and God promised a substitute in death. So that you could be spared that wage. It promised it to you, but it provided animals in substitution, which wasn't the substitution you ultimately needed. And believers, true believers in the Old Testament understood that. Their conscience told them an innocent ram or bull or lamb was insufficient to substitute for a guilty person, a person made in the image of God who's in rebellion. The believer was looking beyond those pictures to the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus himself. And so it's not here as though God had plan A and that didn't work out, so he had to turn to plan B to fix things. That's not what it means by imperfection here. It's that God designed plan A to serve the purpose of teaching us the need for plan B, for all along, plan B was his plan. 
imperfection would give way to and prepare us for perfection. The perfection of Jesus. So that's why it was needed. Imperfection. Secondly, it was needed because of impermanence. You see that in verses 15 through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. And here he quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So what is he doing? He's, he's showing you uh, that bodily descent, it doesn't account. It doesn't add up. It doesn't do for you what you need done. Generation after generation, priests die. No priest lasts. No priest ever finally accomplished all that needs doing. It's impermanent. But by contrast, the power of an indestructible life, referring to Jesus, Jesus, raised from the dead, ascended in glory to live forever, indestructibly so. His priesthood is permanent. It's eternal. It's everlasting. And that's important for us to recognize. Because the problem with sin in our life doesn't just end when you get forgiven. We still struggle with temptation. We struggle. We still struggle with sinfulness. And we need a priest who is always around day and night to help us. There's a woman who's going through very difficult marriage circumstances. And she and her husband sought out a godly Christian counselor for a number of years to talk things through with. They got real help. And then this counselor was killed in a tragic accident. And she remarked, you know... When Bill died, things died with him that nobody else in this world knows about me or about my husband that we have gone through together. When he died, knowledge about my heart and my struggles died with him. And that, in a way, is what it was like for an Old Testament a believer in their priest relationship. You might have shared your burdens with a godly, faithful priest. You, he would have heard you confess certain sins over the animal. And then one day he's dead, buried in a grave, and nobody in the world knows anything about you. But not so with Jesus. He knows everything about you. He knows all your needs. All your temptations, all your evil, all the twistedness of your heart. And you can bear your soul to him. And he never walks away from you. And he's never absent from the job. We needed permanency and we have it. Thirdly, why did it change? Inability, verses 18 and 19. Inability on the part of the law. Verse 18, for on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its what? Weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law simply could not do what Christ did. It's not just that it didn't do it and we needed more. It's that it couldn't do it. It was weak in that sense and useless to that end. It could show you 
what really needed to happen, but it couldn't accomplish that for you. It could tell you that you were unholy, sinful, deserving of death, under the judgment of God, unless you repent and liable to, to curse. And it could tell you that God was gracious and eager to pardon sin, willing to accept a substitute in your place in death to let you go free. But the law didn't actually provide what was ultimately needed. God provided by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Yet the law did serve its purpose in that. It did serve its purpose. He doesn't mean it it didn't serve that purpose. You know, when you open your medicine cabinet and you grab a pill bottle because you're sick and you doc said, just keep taking these pills. Well, what, what's, what's happening when you're doing that? You're, you're actually being reminded every time you see that pill bottle that you are actually still sick. And as long as you keep taking the pill, you're reminded that you haven't been made well. It promises full healing. So you'll never need it again. But while it sits there, it hasn't brought it. So that's the Old Testament system. The law was weak and useless in the sense of giving you all that God intended for you. Peace of conscience from sin. Assurance of salvation forever with him in heaven. That, of course, raises the question, perhaps for some of you, if you're thinking, well, then how was a believer in the Old Testament even saved? If it was an ineffective, weak, useless system. And it didn't save them. And the answer is they were saved just as you and I are, as anybody ever is, by God's grace, through faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah, Christ. The ceremony pointed to Him and that His work on our behalf works forward and backward. His death 2,000 years ago works forward to cover all the sins committed since his death for all who trust in him. And it worked backward to cover the sins committed for thousands of years prior to him. So it's not that they didn't have hope of genuine salvation. But he ends here with the fact that we have a better hope. It's not that they didn't have hope. You have a better one, he says. Ours is better because the priestly perfection and permanence and power of a resurrected Jesus has come. And to embrace that is life-changing. And let's just very quickly, verse 19, talk about three ways. If you, if you receive this for yourself, if you enter into life with this priest, how does this change us? Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Three things. First, remember the lesson. You still need a priest. And that's humbling. Has that humbled you? Now maybe you're neither Jewish nor Christian here tonight. And we're delighted if you're here. And we want you to think about these things with us and ask any of the questions you have. It's possible that you're here and you think that the way to God is to do as well as you can. Maybe a little bit better than others. And maybe if you're a little worse, try harder and it'll be fine. 
But the Bible is saying to you from cover to cover that the way into the presence of God is to be holy, to be perfect, and nothing less is acceptable to a holy God. But nothing more is needed than Jesus, who is your priest, who is your righteousness, who presents you faultless before the throne. So have you been humbled? Learn that lesson. You need a priest. Second, rejoice in your freedom. If you're a believer in Jesus tonight, you and I, we, we can't even imagine life before Christ. How constraining. How unsettling. How much blood and gore. But there is no need for you and I to be involved in that kind of elaborate, gory ceremony. To embrace it now, in fact, is to obscure God's glory. To step back from light and back into shadows. It's interesting, as others have noted, that the early church made a mistake when it attempted to model the Christian ministry on the priesthood of the Levites. Cyprian in the North African church was one of the first ones to argue this, that the the New Testament, New Covenant priesthood, he said, ought to have priests uh, just like the Old Covenant did and, and modeled ministry based on that Old Covenant model. And that's a serious mistake and it's still with us in parts of the church today. But Jesus' priesthood wasn't patterned after Aaron and the Levites. And whatever Aaron and the Levites pointed to, Jesus has fulfilled He ended it all. He fulfilled it all. We don't need that old thing. Whatever we do need, we have in Jesus. And there are Christians today, a different kind of Christian, thinking a different way, who are working for the reestablishment of a future ministry of priesthood and sacrifice in a temple in Israel. And that's a fool's errand. And Rob's glory from the finished work of Christ. John Calvin puts it this way, the person who still holds to or wishes to restore the shadows of the law not only obscures the glory of Christ, but also deprives us of a tremendous blessing in that he puts a distance between us and God when to approach God, freedom has been granted us by the gospel. You have one mediator, I'm not your mediator. The elders who will be ordained and installed in this church are not your mediator. No Christian minister, pastor, or priest is your mediator. Jesus Christ is your sole mediator, and he is available 24-7, 365. And you always have immediate access to the Father through the Son, because he's your priest. And so finally, by application... Use your priest. Draw near to God through Him. That old system that did give hope that nearness with God was possible also in in its whole system put a big stop sign up and said, you can't be near to God. Not you, not in your condition. Oh, yeah, your priest, he can be nearer. He gets to go into the holy place 
where God dwells, near it. But even the priest can't get as close as only one can, the high priest who gets to go into the most holy place. And nobody else ever gets to go behind that curtain, through that veil, into the nearness of God on earth. But now you are invited to come confidently, to come boldly before the throne of grace. You don't have to wait for business to open at the temple. You don't have to hunt down an acceptable sacrifice. You don't have to wait for it to be inspected and approved. You don't have to worry about a priest rejecting it. You don't have to go through the troubling concern of doing it all over again next week for the same sin you committed last week or last month or last year. Now that Jesus, our priest, has passed through the curtain on into the presence of God, he bears us with him. What a friend we have in Jesus. Draw near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace that your arms are stretched wide. So wide. For all the world, from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. Because you spared not your own son, that we could come to you through him. Thank you. Stir our gratitude. Help us to come to you and not run from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.